Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Tish Vincent. And I'm Joanne Hathaway. We're very pleased to have Victoria Valetich, Assistant Dean at Western Michigan University Cooley Law School, join us today as our podcast guest to talk about the 2019 law school experience. So, Victoria, would you share some information about yourself with our listeners? Uh, Thank you for having me today. I'm really excited to be talking with you. I have been in the legal profession most of my career. I started out as a court clerk, uh, became a paralegal, and then went to law school. Um, And after graduating from law school, I practiced privately for about six years in a um, Main Street law firm in Owasso, Michigan. And then after that, spent 10 years as um, in-house ethics counsel at the State Bar of Michigan, where I got to uh, work with you, Joanne, and um, for the last 10 and a half years have been uh, teaching professional responsibility and evidence at the Grand Rapids Michigan campus of Thomas M. uh, Western Michigan University, Thomas M. Cooley Law School. Thank you. Thank you. That's quite a resume. And so with all that experience with legal education, both as a consumer and as a professor, can you share with us some of the changes you've seen in legal education? It's been very striking how legal education uh, has changed. And uh, some of that is uh, market-driven, which uh, we can talk about a little later But in terms of the classroom and the student experience, there are uh, several dynamics that uh, have really driven reform, as it's termed in legal education. And the first and foremost cause of that is that learners have changed over the generations. And, you know, I remember when I was a kid, and you may remember you know, the annual field trip to the museum that uh, you took uh, when you were in school. And we'd go to the Museum of Natural History and there would be the stuffed antelope and there would be the stuffed polar bear. And eight years later, when my younger brother would go to the Natural History Museum, the same antelope was there and the same polar bear was there. And that has really changed. You go to museums today, particularly children's museums, and it is a very hands-on, interactive experience. Uh, Learners today, uh, young learners today, are used to a very interactive, hands-on, experiential way of learning. And yet, Modern legal education has been very slow at recognizing that, and we throw them into classrooms that are, up until very recently, have still followed the Professor Kingsfield paper chase model, where they're in a classroom and 
the professor randomly calls on them and engages uh, in the Socratic method with them, which can be terrifying and intimidating and uh, highly analytical. And so it's it's a situation that's very foreign to many of our young learners today. There's just no question that the digital revolution has changed the way uh, learners learn material, and that has had several consequences. That to be entertained uh, while learning things. Uh, I'm going to date myself with this, but I remember when MTV first came out, and it was just such a revolution, and my brothers and sisters and I would watch the same 25 videos over and over because it was uh, uh, such a new, a new thing. And, and, and this is our new learners uh, today are very visual. They acquire information at a fast pace and they expect um, their world as one of, of entertainment, not just of acquisition of knowledge. And the flip side of that coin, I mean, that's a wonderful coin, the ability to obtain information so quickly compared to even 20, 25 years ago. The flip side of that coin is its impact on focus. And I can personally attest to how having access to the internet and cell phones and multiple devices has negatively impacted my ability to focus. And so law school and law study requires a lot of sustained focus. And that is foreign, I think, for a good percentage of law students today. And the other thing that I would add to that that is related is that I think that there's a generational impatience with the learning process because uh, younger people are able to access information so quickly and in such a concrete fashion, they're perhaps have an expectation that the learning process is more of a downloadable experience. And those Mm -hmm. of us who are a little older know that learning, particularly deep learning, is something that comes over time and slowly. And most often you learn by doing it wrong and getting it wrong before you start to get it right. It comes with much practice. So they're more impatient, uh, I think, than our generation was with that learning process. So, Victoria, how do you see law school students experiencing anxiety today? My goodness, uh, that is a topic that we could talk about all day. Millennials have, I think, unfairly been tagged with the label of being lazy. Um, And one of the things that I and my colleagues have discovered is that uh, there is an epidemic of anxiety uh, in our society today, not just young people, but it does manifest in law students in a way that I think is a little different than 
the way anxiety manifested in um, other generations of law students. And we see very bright, very capable students who, when faced with anxiety, one of their reactions is instead of fighting and and working through this and, and recognizing that they're anxious about something and learning how to manage that, they flee, the fight or flight mode. And the way they flee is by not engaging. And so they will consciously or subconsciously just not put their best foot forward so that they already have a, a reason to peg if they underperform. Um, well, I I stayed up too late or I, I didn't um, put the time into it. So it's almost a form of subconscious self-sabotage uh, because it, in my uh, non-trained psych logical opinion, it seems that um, that it's too painful, it feels too painful and too risky to put themselves totally into something and at the risk of, of failing at it. And so we, in, and of course, in the law school experience and becoming lawyers, that's a very pernicious dynamic that has to be addressed. They're not going to be able to achieve their goals of uh, doing well in law school and being a good lawyer if they can't recognize and manage their anxiety and learn how to uh, face it. So an attempt to avoid their anxiety by avoiding the legal learning and the legal tasks is going to harm their potential for success in this field. Very well said. Thank you. That is, I was speaking in your area of expertise, Chris. So, yeah. Uh, You're doing you a great job. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Can you say a little bit about a challenge you see to today's law school students from the underfunding of public education? Yes, that's an, another factor that not just law schools, but undergrad institutions uh, are facing. We already know that learners coming out of wealthy, well-funded school district versus an inner city school district uh, are going to uh, have uh, acquired stronger and better learning skills, perhaps, than uh, the other. But by the time they get to law school, what the two things that we're really seeing, uh, number one, weak writing skills. And uh, that is really critical because as an attorney, being able to write well is a crucial skill. That's how you speak predominantly to the court, uh, writing and reading, uh, whether through case law or statutes, is imperative. And the other skill that we find uh, being very weak are analytical skills. And I, I don't think it's any accident that both writing and analytical skills take a lot of time and personal attention to develop in students. 
in order to become a good writer and in order to acquire strong analytical skills, that requires a lot of practice, a lot of time and attention from the teacher. And if your public education experience when you were younger didn't give you a lot of that, uh, you're going to be at a disadvantage um, by the time you you reach college and particularly law school. I've heard you say that law school students today are seeking a deeper meaning. Can you share more about that, Victoria? Yes, and this is one of my favorite things about millennials. And as I said earlier, sometimes they, they get a bad rap, and I think all generations get knocked by the prior generation. But one of the really wonderful things that I love about millennials is that they really want to effectuate positive change. They want to make the world a better place to be. And they want to know that what they are learning is important to the world. And I've only recently come to realize the challenge that that poses to teachers, uh, because as teachers, particularly law teachers, we forget how much context we already have. We've been through the practice of law. We know how a court case works. We uh, have that bigger picture. So I had a student in my office last term, and we were going over the rules of character evidence, uh, which are particularly complex and difficult to master, and we were focusing on the very technical elements of those rules and the process and how they interplay. And she was so frustrated because she said, I don't understand how these matter. I don't understand why these rule elements, what they mean and why they are important. And it suddenly dawned on me that I have to do a better job of indicating to them that these rule elements will control what sort of evidence gets in to a case and what sort of evidence stays out of a case. And that can determine whether an innocent person goes to prison (laughs) or keeps their freedom. And so they really need that context and meaning in order to do that deep technical digging into the rules and the and the case law that have been uh, perhaps intuitive for other generations. That's very interesting. How have you seen the legal profession restructure in the last decade, and what is the impact of that on law schools and students? Well, that's a, a, a really interesting question. The way I characterize it is that 2008 was a perfect storm. Uh, we First of all, you had the Great Recession of 2008, which restructured many things in our society. You combine that with the rise of technology, and you see how technology has disrupted all sorts of industries. 
Uh, you look at what Uber did to the taxicab industry, what Airbnb has done to the um, hotel industry. And the law profession, legal profession is no different. We consumers now have the ability to obtain legal documents online much more conveniently and perhaps uh, much more cheaply than they could in the past. And the third factor coming in are the new generation of learners and how they learn very differently than um, other generations of learners. So that has completely upended legal education um, because the old method of law school was a cash cow. You could put 110 people into a classroom with one professor and there were enough applicants, there were enough people interested in going to law school that you could make it a sink or swim model where you just threw law students in and those who were able to figure out how to swim got to stay in the pool and those who couldn't figure out how to swim on their own didn't get to stay in the pool. Well, that no longer works, Um, not only because the pool of learners demographically, there are just not, not as many potential students in terms of raw numbers out there for schools. You have the old teaching methods don't work for the generations of learners that we uh, do have. And I'm not even sure that old Professor Kingsfield model worked very well for, for us. And so what has happened is post-2008, law school enrollment is down across the board for all law schools. And that means most law schools are chasing the same students. And so it's highly competitive. And because of all of the changes and the change in how the new generation of learners learn, you need smaller classes and more teachers at a time when enrollment is down now. So it's the restructuring of the legal profession has really put pressure on the law school business model, uh, which has also put pressure on the law school learning model at the same time. So if you talk to law schools and you explore law schools, it's very interesting to see how law schools are responding to these changes and reforming their curriculum and reforming their business models to address these dynamics. Victoria, do you have any thoughts about the pluses and minuses of the bar exam in general? Well, that is certainly the last piece. I mean, it's a very important piece, uh, the process of becoming a lawyer. And there absolutely has to be a competency threshold. The legal profession and law schools owe it to the public to ensure that we are turning out good, ethical, strong lawyers. However, the one piece of the legal education process uh, that has not 
been reformed. That is not changing and responding quickly to the very significant dynamics occurring in the restructuring of the legal profession and the restructuring of the economy is the bar exam. Essentially, the bar exam is the same format and the same process that I went through 25 years ago, even though the world is a very different place. The traditional bar exam stresses theoretical technical knowledge, but it doesn't test problem-solving skills. And just because you have a lot of technical legal knowledge doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great lawyer. And if I may share a, a, a quick story, there's a law student I know, very gifted. His dream was to be a prosecutor. And he was very skilled on, on his externship uh, in a prosecutor's office. There were jobs awaiting him once he graduated and passed the bar. He was just born to be a prosecutor. And he struggled to get past the bar exam. And his issue, too, was anxiety. Even though he was very smart and he knew the law, very talented lawyer, the bar exam was a very difficult for him, very anxiety-provoking process. And I very much respect and admire him because I think he sat for the bar exam for six seven tries, and he finally wow. passed it. And immediately upon passing was given a job uh, in a prosecutor's office because everybody recognized what a talented prosecutor uh, he is. And, and I'm thrilled that he, his dream is fulfilled. And the real key to that story is that one of his loves as a prosecutor was working in the juvenile division of the court because he didn't view his role as a technical lawyer prosecutor. He really wanted to engage in reform. He wanted to give this juvenile offender a chance to uh, redeem his or her life to make this young person's life different and to make it better. And I shudder to think if he hadn't had the perseverance to keep going, how many people like him are we weeding out of the legal profession with the bar exam? And the bar exam, uh, as it's structured now, is easy and it's measurable, but I really question whether it's measuring the key skills. And I'm not alone in that opinion. Recently, the American Bar Association Council on Legal Education has proposed a significant change in the standard by which law schools would have to adhere to that would significantly impact access schools, schools who really believe in diversity and inclusion and have a broad front door and a smaller back door, so to speak. It was resoundingly 
uh, voted down by the ABA House of Delegates in February. And I believe it's for this reason uh, that the practicing bar, the legal profession, recognizes that law schools are working to change their business models, they're working to change their academic models. And the one piece that hasn't changed is the bar exam. And until the bar exam catches up with the changes that are occurring in the legal profession and legal education, it won't be an accurate and fair assessment of who should and shouldn't be lawyers. Well, Victoria, it looks like we've come to the end of our show. We'd like to thank our guest today, Victoria Valetich, for a wonderful program. Victoria, if our guests would like to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Sure. My email address is uh, V as in Victor, U-L-E-T-I-C-V, so that's V at cooley.edu. They can reach me through the Cooley website, www.cooley.org. And I'm also on LinkedIn. And thank you very much for uh, talking with me today. I have a lot of passion for this subject. And so it's really wonderful talking with you about it. Thank you, Victoria. It's been wonderful hearing your thoughts on these important issues. This has been another edition of the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com, subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS, find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.